if I encounter a broken piece of glass in the dark, and if I feel a broken piece of glass, I should be able to tell that's a piece of a Coke glass bottle. You know, that was a Coke bottle at some point. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, David Ye and Puneet Upadhyay. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that we have material science merchandise for those who want to support us or simply express your passion for MSE. So check out the designs, visit itsamaterialworldpodcast.com forward slash shop or click the link in the description. Special thanks to MatMatch for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone. So today's guest is Raj Gopalaswamy who has over 30 years of experience in new product development, innovation, and business strategy. Raj has a strong background in the packaging industry specifically, as he served as a technical director of global packaging at Coca-Cola for almost five years, where he helped lead transformative initiatives in the beverage packaging industry. This is a globally recognized brand that we all know, and so we're super excited to talk about how materials helped shape this brand to what it is today, and as well as the future of the packaging industry as a whole. So thank you so much for joining us, Raj. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be part of the discussion. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for joining today. I guess just to give us kind of a context about why packaging is important, I found on the website that Coca-Cola says it sells about 2 billion drinks each day. But one thing that people don't think about is how do we get the drinks to each of the consumer worldwide? So could you kind of explain what the supply chain looks like for this giant operation? Sure. So you're absolutely right. Coke is a, is a giant company. It's one of the world's most well-known brands, right? And Maybe we, we step back and take a look at the history. You know, until 1916, if I got my math right, until 1916, Coke was not distributed in, in packages. There were no bottles, plastic bottles, glass bottles, not, none of that stuff. It was all fountain. If you go to the Coke Museum, they, they have a kind of a mock-up fountain, right? You can walk up and there used to be a special name for the, for the person who gave you the drink. And people used to use it for headaches, there's a lot of rumors uh, about different ingredients in Coke and all that. You can look it up. It's, it's fun stuff. But right around 1915-ish, Coke uh, actually issued a competition because they, they realized, you know, I think his name is Frank Johnson, who was the marketing genius at that time. He realized he wanted to put Coke in packages, and that's the only way they could get it out to the public, right? Not, not have people come to Coke, but getting the Coke inside uh, everybody's hands and stuff like that. So they uh, issued a competition and uh, there was a company out of Indiana. I think it's called the Root Glass Company. They won the Coke bottle design competition and they filed a patent and all that. And that's the, the patented iconic Coke bottle shape that we see. So the way they, the supply chain worked at that time was obviously you, you had these trucks that took the Coke that was manufactured at the bottler and then the trucks would take it to the retail store or wherever the, the bottles were sold, small stores, larger stores and so on. And you would go and pick up the bottles and then bring them back. So they, get, they got recycled and, and such. But then there's a bigger behind the scenes thing, like you said, going on here, which is 
how does Coke itself get the Coke in that bottle, right? So first they, they have to make the syrup, but the model is, is so well-structured. And I'm talking here only about the Coca-Cola and the carbonated drinks supply chain. It's very well-structured in the sense that you would first make the syrup and distribute the syrup either through train or trucks or whatever means possible to all these bottlers. So Coca-Cola is a franchise system. It's like McDonald's, right? If you were a bottler and you wanted to bottle Coke, you would go and sign an agreement with Coke saying, I have this territory and I would make the Coke. If you ship me all the syrup, I would make the Coke and I own this territory. I'll ship everything that I make to the confines within that territory to all the retail stores. So it starts with the Coca-Cola syrup going to the bottler and then the trucks distributing it to the retailers where people can purchase. There's one more, uh, there's few layers, depending on the country in which Coke distributes their products, there could be different layers. There could be distribution centers, you know, where the Coke packages are distributed to, and then they are distributed back to the retailer. And then also remember that the retailer has layers of distribution. If, if you're talking about somebody like a Walmart, for example, they would be distributing it to a, a DC, as we call it, distribution center. And then from there, go to the, to the actual storefronts and so forth. So the, the supply chain is quite complex. There's a lot of different agreements that Coca-Cola as a company would sign with either the bottlers or the retailers. Uh, and that's, that's the way the franchise system is organized. And then while the product goes through all of this supply chain, you might expect, you know, in some countries where it's very, very efficient, the roads are good, the product probably gets to the shelf in a, in a week or two weeks. In some cases, if it's directly distributed to the store, it might get there in less than a week. In some countries where the roads are not that great and it's far away places, rural, you know, I'll, I'll pick on my native country, India, uh, rural India, you know, if the Coke is made in New Delhi, for example, and it's got to go to some place 200 miles away, uh, there might be layers of that supply chain, which might take it like take three weeks sometimes to get to the storefront. So it is quite complex, but it's a very intriguing field to study. No, I didn't even know that it was like a franchising type system similar to McDonald's. That's super fascinating. I guess that makes it leaner in some ways. It does make it very lean. That, that in itself is a, is a case study from Harvard and so many other you know, business schools on how the supply chain is organized, how that franchise system works between uh, you know, Coca-Cola and its bottlers. And in fact, even, even the PepsiCo bottling group is also a franchise system. And the way this works is at that time, I believe if my history is right again, when, when Coke signed this distribution agreement right in the beginning, the first bottler, which was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they paid $1 for distribution rights to Coke. But we're talking, you know, 1916, right? In the middle of the, the Great War and all that stuff. So the thing is, uh, it becomes a pretty interesting franchising model. You have to pay to get the rights to own that territory, but then you're distributing one of the world's biggest brands. So you will be quite profitable. The operations are complex. I mean, there's mixing and recipes and all that stuff in the, in the bottling operation. But then 
at the end, the reward is in making consumers enjoy all, all the beverages, right? So the franchise model, having said all that, has had its ups and downs. Sometimes Coca-Cola might think that some bottlers or some bottling units are not performing to the level that they would like them to. So Coke might actually purchase them back, reintegrate them into the Coca-Cola uh, system. And then after a few years, you might see Coca-Cola actually divest or sell off the same bottling units after bringing them back to you know, the performance levels that they would, they would like to see. While I was at Coke, this actually happened uh, with uh, Coca-Cola Enterprises, one of the largest bottlers in North America. Coke bought the unit, the name changed to Coca-Cola Refreshments, and then they sold back all of those operations, uh, I think six or seven years ago now, and they divided it into so many different, it was broken up into, you know, 10, 15 different bottling franchises. Uh, and now there's multiple bottlers of Coke in, in North America. So I think we should focus on the packaging and the materials now. And you mentioned that Coca-Cola has this extensive history. So what advancements have been made particular to packaging like and how we know it today? Yeah, yeah, you're taking me back a few years to some of the, the trainings that we used to do out of packaging, we used to have a pretty structured training curriculum for new hires and uh, you know interns that came into Coke. You could go sit in this class and you can learn about different parts of the company. And we always got the feedback that when we did the packaging thing, that it was the most well-received and most entertaining one, okay? So I'll, I'll try to do the same thing here, but <laughs> without too much glamour and, and glitz because the way we used to do it was we, we would take the packages to the class and we'll show, you know, right from the 60s, how all these things evolved. So I can tell you, uh, just, just to get into it a little bit, the glass bottles came first, right? Uh, and the, the glass bottles are really heavy. And we have some from the Coke archives, they have some of the bottles right from the, from the beginning, you know, from the 1916s and, and the early 1900s. So if you take a look at those bottles, you know, with that iconic shape again that the Root Glass Company filed a patent on and stuff, they were distributing those. And slowly over the years, they figured that you're shipping a lot of product. And Coke was growing at this time, right? They're growing, they're distributing in the US. Now they expanded into Europe. The Second World War comes around, Coke continues to distribute. They want Robert Woodruff. Uh, he was the chairman of Coke for you know, decades. He says that I want everybody in the world to hold a, hold a bottle of Coke and enjoy this, this beverage, right? So the pricing of that bottle of Coke never changed for, you know, decades. It was always five cents per bottle. So anyway, they, they were doing that with the glass bottle. And during that time period, they figured that the more they ship, the more it costs to ship. There's a fleet and there's petroleum that has to be used, you know, gas, gasoline and stuff like that. So you start lightweighting the glass bottles. So that's an, another evolution in the glass itself. Then the 60s came and the, and the cans became popular, right? The steel cans became very popular at the time. So uh, Coke also transitioned into steel cans. And uh, right around the mid to late 60s, aluminum cans became uh, came into vogue because 
People figured that they could form aluminum faster and more efficiently, probably at lower cost than, than steel. So slowly, the steel starts getting eroded away and the aluminum starts growing. So that's the glass and the aluminum. And then in the late 80s, and Coke is actually a pioneer in this, uh, they worked with uh, researchers, I believe, and, and they figured that they could blow plastic bottles, plastic containers. It's not that plastic containers did not exist until that time, but remember that Coca-Cola is a pressurized fluid, right? It's got carbonation in it, and that carbonation uh, exerts pressure on the package. So the glass and the steel cans, we call them rigid packages because there's no impact from that pressure as long as you make the, the design strong enough. But then with the plastic, plastic tends to expand if you, if you don't put enough plastic and enough thickness into the, into the package. So they developed this uh, unique design that they released in the early 90s, extremely popular, and that just took off exponentially. And, and they figured that they could branch off into so many different types of designs because why? Because the, if you, it's blow molded. So you take a small tube, like a test tube of plastic, and then you put high air pressure on it and, and blow it into this mold. And the mold can be any shape. Uh, think about it like, uh, you know, cookie dough and you're, you're pressing the molds and, and you're baking it. Here, uh, of course, you're not baking, but the mold can be pretty much any shape as long as it's able to hold the liquid in, inside, right? So they came up with so many different designs. That's why you see iconic Coke bottle uh, designs in plastic. Sprite has its own uh, kind of design. Fanta has its own, uh, you know, bottle design and so forth. So there's this enormous pro proliferation of designs that comes into beverage packaging. And of course, it's not just Coke at this time doing it. In the 90s and 2000s, it's everybody else also. So that's kind of, just to give you a full evolution of, of beverage packaging. And of course, the economics behind plastics has been uh, tremendously helpful compared to the, the aluminum cans and the bottles. But if you talk to any person from Coca-Cola, uh, especially a packaging person like myself, I would say all of them are important. They serve different needs for consumers at different uh, times, at di for different occasions. And if we think of ourselves as consumers, you'll, you'll feel the same way, I think. Yeah, so I think that's a really cool history. Like, I, I know that I've seen the glass bottles, like, kind of as antiquities now. Mm -hmm. But just a question I had was that I, a fun fact that I know about Coke is that their secret formula for their Coke is actually not patented. It's just a secret because a patent has a, a three years of a hundred years. Yeah. And so that's how they're keeping everything a secret is if they never file a patent, they don't have to disclose what's actually inside Coke. But with packaging, you kind of just said how important it is because like we kind of almost feel like for the plastic or for glass bottles, they're so recognizable, but those are patentable. So from your experience, kind of how does that conversation unfold about do we just continue to innovate or are there protections that we can take so that our competition can't rip us off from our very unique and uh, distinctive designs? The thing is, you're right. The intellectual property behind these designs and, and these packages is very important to all these companies, right? If you talk about Coke specifically, Coke is extremely possessive of the iconic Coca-Cola shape. 
and rightfully so, right? That stands out and everybody recognizes it. It's said that, uh, and this, this, these are common things and you know, a lot, lot of us and a lot of the audience would have heard this. The way Coke actually uh, advertised that competition that I talked about was if I encounter a broken piece of glass in the dark, you know, electricity is out on, and, in the, and if I feel a broken piece of glass, I should be able to tell that's a piece of a Coke glass bottle. You know, that, 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 that was a Coke bottle at some point. So it's so iconic. So what Coca-Cola does is it's not just the patents. The IP or intellectual property involves a portfolio of ways you can protect your designs and your know-how, right? There's trademarks you can own and there's patents you can file on the design and the, and the utility of the package. And then there's internal know-how, which means like your, uh, the, you mentioned the recipe, that's an internal know-how. They will never, they do not want to patent it because the patent releases information out into the, into the world. So they want to keep it internal know-how. There's so many different ways of protecting your intellectual property. That's a very important piece of not just packages, but also the products, the beverages inside. That's part of it. The other part of it is the brand itself, right? Uh, Coke is a highly recognized brand. So when you say that, uh, you know, I'm going to go to Walmart or I'm going to the to the convenience store and I'm picking up a 20-ounce bottle of Coke or, or a 12-ounce aluminum can of Coke, you would not ask me to go and pick up a can of Raj Cola. Maybe I can take that cola and reverse engineer it. I can do a lot of chemical analysis and, you know, there's, there's chromatography and a lot of things, material analysis to pick out all the, the composition of that beverage itself. Uh, and people have done that. And they can they can go and sell a cola, but it's not it's not the Coca Cola brand, and it's not endorsed by Coke in by any means. So that plays a huge role in protection of the entire, you know, for the company of the entire portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. So th th those are important things, and in some cases, you know, people might think that this is the boring aspect of packaging, but it's actually it it gets very thrilling and exciting because uh, if you see a design uh, that people come close to the Coke bottle design, or if, if we used to see something where people are getting, or, or they might actually be infringing, the company would go after them because you don't, you don't want people to kind of go and plagiarize what, uh, what, is, what took years for some companies to develop and uh, put in the market, right? So it's a, it's a very high value. So let's dive into the brand that you mentioned and how Coca-Cola is using those innovations. So we've talked about how the packaging designs have varied over the years. And one thing that you had mentioned in a previous call was the implementation of a more expensive package, I believe, despite the drink itself remaining the same. And so I was wondering, could you talk us through some of these generalities surrounding the cost to benefit analysis there and what data was gathered that suggested that a more expensive package could still lead to a good return on investment? 
Yeah, that is an interesting question. And this is a tough one for a lot of uh, consumer packaged goods companies. Uh, we, we call them CPG, right? In the CPG industry, or, or maybe in, in Europe and in the Eastern countries, they call it fast-moving consumer goods, or FMCG. So if you see their words, uh, their acronym CPG or FMCG, they're basically consumer packaged goods companies. And in one sense, Coke is, is part of that world uh, because it's a uh, you know distribution of packaging. So let's take the aluminum bottle. You know there were a lot of people involved in uh, in the Coke aluminum bottle program, as we used to call it. It was uh, the ambition of the company, and again, th- this is we can Google this and we can get all this history. Uh, but if you are part of it, you know the excitement behind it. There's a lot of excitement behind the aluminum bottle. So the glass bottle has a very unique shape, right? And I would be remiss if I did not talk with the packaging. You know, packaging people always like to talk with packaging. So if you give me a couple of seconds, I'm going to go get some packages, okay? We were talking about aluminum bottles. So this is one of the very first aluminum bottles that uh, Coke put in the market. This is from 2008. What's on here is, you can see, it's called uh, V8 bottles. So these were specifically made for the Beijing Olympics. So you can see the, uh, you know, the laughing man or whatever uh, he was called. Uh, and there's some Chinese written on it. And, and isn't eight like a sacred number, like lucky yes, number? Yes, yes. It was 080808, right? That was the opening ceremony in Beijing. And Coke's always the biggest sponsor of the Olympics. Uh, so we worked very hard to get, get these uh, to the Olympics. They were made in, in the US actually and, and shipped out thousands of them. So anyway, the thing is on the, on the glass bottle, so this is one of the very old designs that I was talking about, the, you know, the initial patented root glass company. The bottle's not 100 years old. This is... Uh, Coke made these shapes uh, during the 155th, oh, sorry, 125th uh, year anniversary. So anyway, you can see the iconic shape in, in glass. So the ambition for Coke was taking a really drab, boring shape of the can and saying, why can't we make the same iconic shape in aluminum, right? Because uh, that's what creates this this real nice mystique around around Coke is is one of the things is the iconic package shape. And it's recognizable everywhere and all that. But this doesn't reflect that that iconic shape. We have to do a lot of things with the graphics on the can and stuff like that to be able to do that. So the ambition was to create this kind of iconic shape with aluminum. Now, the problem is... Aluminum cannot be, at that time, there were a lot of attempts made to make shaped cans. You know, shape the can and make it look as close as possible to this uh, iconic shape and all that. There were a lot of projects, a lot of money, uh, and it did not work because the shaped cans were made, but it still looked like a can. Uh, And because of this, all this extra processing, it adds cost to the manufacturing of those cans. Uh, in the end, what happens is we talked about the supply chain. As you go through the supply chain, at any point you add cost, it just flows down. If I'm the can maker, it costs me more to make a shaped can, then I'm going to increase my pricing to the to the bottler who buys the cans from me. 
then the bottler increases the price to the retailer who increases the price to the consumer. So when you and I go to the shelf, we're saying, okay, last week I bought the same can for 25 cents and now they made it look a little different, but it's the same Coke inside. I'm not going to buy it. So let me, and if I'm not a very brand loyal consumer, I would say, okay, I'm going for the, you know, Pepsi or the RC Cola, whatever. And they actually saw that happen. And for our audio only listeners, what he, what he's comparing is the this the classic Coca Cola shape, but in aluminum form, to the cylindrical shape. Yep. So anyway, the uh, the thing is, when you do that, when you add shape to the aluminum, you're adding more processing. Of course, again, you're you're increasing the cost, and then you have to use more aluminum. It's the laws of physics. That's how I would put it. Right. You need more material to make the shape, and therefore you're increasing the cost of the, of the package. You're also doing more processing. So I'll give you an example. To shape the scan, it takes about 13 different steps to shape it into that shape. To shape the same aluminum bottle that I just showed you, it takes about 65 stages. Wow. So it's a 5x increase in the processing. And then it uses... In, in the early days, at that time, it was using like over 35 grams in that bottle that I showed you, while the can is only about 10 grams, right? So three times the amount of material, 5x times the uh, amount of processing, and obviously it's going to end up costing two and a half, three times more than the can. But the hope was that, hey, if I make it iconic, you know, consumers would consider it cool. It's got some badge value. I I get seen carrying a bottle of Coke. It's not a can of Coke anymore, that type of thing. Did not work very well in the early stages because you can't put the same product and say, I'm going to charge you three times more <laughs> just because it. the coolness lasts for what? If I'm with my buddies and you know they ask me about it maybe once or twice and the third time it gets old and I'm paying three times for it. <laughs> it loses the value pretty quick, right? <laughs> so what Coke reverted to at the time as a strategy was, it's going to be a niche product. It's not going to be a mainstream can. It's not going to start, uh, as we say in the CPG industry, cannibalizing the can. It's not going to be that. It's going to be for very special occasions, and it's going to be uh, a super premium product. That's what I was thinking is if you like make, if you limit how many are made or you make it more like a collectible, then maybe the value of it increases. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you make it a collectible, you make very unique, you know, you go after very unique events like the Olympics, mm -hmm. the World Cup uh, soccer games. Mm -hmm. We had several beautiful designs for the World Cup soccer games as well. I have a few, few more here. But anyway, that, that's the story behind the aluminum bottle. It became like this niche super premium kind of metal package that you can use, a, you can distribute it and everything else falls in line once you decide the strategy, right? Once you decide the strategy, then all the, the supply chain that it keeps going back to the supply chain because it's a package, it need, needs to go through the supply chain. So the way you distribute it, where you distribute it, for what, what occasions consumers are going to use it, everything falls in line. And each one of these can look very different from a canned supply chain, for example. That's the, that's the aluminum bottle story for you. 
I'm just kind of curious, as a packaging engineer, how much of the time is spent on the actual technical part about like figuring out how to make an aluminum bottle and how much of the time is spent about where do we want to place it in our portfolio? How do we want to market it? It kind of sounds like that business side takes up a lot more time potentially once you figure out the basic technical aspects. It does. Yeah, that's a very good question. So Coca-Cola, like a lot of the large companies, you know, if you've heard of uh, this methodology called the stage gate, the, so the stage gate methodology is used and it's not just Coca, everybody pretty much in the world has reverted to that method, which, which sequences these things, you know, at each stage, you start from stage one where you have the idea, you do some ideation, brainstorming, come up with different designs and you keep moving down the stages until you go and launch something into the market. So a typical cycle, I would say, for a, for a can, for example, if I want to put a different graphic and a different shape, height and diameter of the can, right? It takes about, let's say, eight to 10 months uh, for that full cycle for, for technical engineering and development. In parallel, like you said, you've got to develop the business strategy, what products are going to be in there and all of that. It gets intense. The business strategy, I would say in the early days, it's not as intense, right? So it, it works the opposite way. The technology development, engineering and all that is pretty heavy in the beginning. And as you get towards the launch stage, then you, you are more into, can I make millions of these packages, how reliable it is, the manufacturing part of it. Yes, I don't want to take away the intensity behind manufacturing and commercialization. It's very important. But the intellectual horsepower is, at least in, in my mind, is higher in the early stages of, of the technology development. Okay. In contrast, the business development and the, and the business strategy thinking it could have some intensity in the beginning because you have to develop the strategy behind it. But towards the end, as you get closer to going into the market and launching something, it gets very intense because you, you want to make sure the execution is flawless. You want to make sure the supply chain is all aligned. All the bottlers are ready and they're saying two thumbs up, ship me the thing. You know, the can makers have to make the cans and ship things in time. So all of that becomes pretty intense, but they all go in parallel. So as the technology development tapers off, the commercialization takes off. So that's how I would say it. And, and it's, it's a very methodically laid out process. In contrast to the aluminum can, if I were to do the plastic bottle, for example, totally new plastic bottle design, a totally new shape and everything, new beverage even, it might be three to four months before it's launched. So there's a difference in the, in the cycle time. And those are some of the advantages, pros and cons between the packages. No, that, that's very interesting. I had no idea that it would take so long to create a new package. But I guess kind of on the topic of that, we talked about before uh, how uh, companies use packaging to tell a story and to change consumer preferences. One of my favorite examples from Coke is the entire share Coke with, and then there's a name on the back. And like for a while, that was such a uh, rage that people would actively seek out Coke to find their name. And so I guess, could you kind of tell us about how Coke and maybe other companies in general use these types of innovative packaging to shape how a consumer interacts with the product? 
So I'll start with uh, a little bit of theory, uh, but not boring by any means, okay? The theory is that, and, and this is a little bit of marketing and psychology, like the package, you can consider it the form and, and the function is inside the package. The product is inside, right? But for us and for, for all of us as consumers, for us to go into the store or the convenience store or wherever it is and pick up this thing and look at it. So there's a visual feel and then there's a tactile, tactility comes in, all of that stuff. So you got to create the form first. Otherwise, no one's going to pick you up, right? So you, you got to create that awareness that, hey, I am, I'm standing here and look at me and try me kind of thing. So you got to create that awareness, as we call it in, in, the, in marketing speak. Then the package also incentivizes the consumer to trial it. So you open it, you, you purchase the thing saying, hey, I want to try this thing. You open it and, and you drink out of it. Now, if your product experience is bad, if you hate the, like if I purchase some kombucha and this is me, okay, if I purchase some kombucha and I don't like it, I'm not going to go buy it whatever package you put it in, right? So the, the trial, I stop at the trial stage. But if I love the product, then what happens is I get the repeat purchase. So it's the, it's the cycle of awareness, trial, and repeat. So uh, going back to your question, you've got to create the package is so important to create that awareness in consumers' minds. And of course, Coke introduces a lot of new beverages, but in general, the flagship brands, the flagship beverages like Coke, Sprite, Fanta, Diet Coke, Coke Zero, and, and so on, those are very well known to consumers and the consumers have kind of aligned themselves to some of these drinks. You might prefer a Coke Zero, I might like the Diet Coke and so on. So Coke is very well aware of that. So they, they do them, they structure the entire marketing campaigns according to who they want to target. So when, when Coke is marketing a Sprite bottle, for example, you'll see it being very clear, the crystal clear Sprite thing, and they'll communicate to the consumer that way. Share Coke was, was a perfect example of that. You know, how, how we create these connections between people so they can enjoy a drink for, for each one of them. So that, going back to, to the awareness trial repeat, so the Share Coke creates that awareness. The next trip you go to the Walmart or, or a quick trip, you're looking for your name, you're looking for your girlfriend's name or, or boyfriend's name or whatever, and it creates that connection. Uh, and everybody knows the product is great inside anyway, right? Uh, so the repeat purchase is taken care of automatically. So it, it keeps coming back to that awareness trial repeat. And if you can, if you can crack that, then, then it becomes like this. You, you'll, you'll find it hard to keep up with consumer's pace. So having said all that, okay, uh, the complexity begins when consumers get tired of it. It gets old. You know, uh, you, you yourself mentioned like, oh yeah, when that campaign was running, it was so cool and everything. So I can tell you the first year that Coke introduced Share Coke was super exciting. Everybody was so excited. There was marketing campaigns all over the place. Everybody was going and digging into all these containers saying, there's my name and all that stuff. Second year, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I remember seeing that last summer. Let's go check it out. 
the third year comes oh yeah th- this is this is good but i've been there done that right so you got to keep on reinventing yourself uh, it's not going to fly after some time because consumers taste keep changing i never did find a coke with my name on it so uh, that's the one disappointing thing <laughs> <laughs> i was going to say the same thing you know gopal swami and raj where are you going to get it maybe i, I should have gone and looked in india maybe, maybe in india <laughs> <laughs> Cool, cool. So now let's dive into, I guess, what the future of this area looks like. And so you mentioned sustainability will be a primary focus in packaging for years to come. And so we were just wondering in what ways do you envision companies putting a larger emphasis on like recycling and reducing waste and specifically how can material science play a role in achieving that goal? Yeah, thanks for this question, because this is uh, pretty near and dear to my heart as well the push for sustainability and a sustainable world has always been there uh, it's just the degree to which we are emphasizing it and giving it the priority that it deserves right i remember 15 years ago in in coke you know some of the senior leadership were were saying we don't know how the world is changing you know climate change is coming and and all of that but the awareness was not really widespread and and the seriousness was not very well understood then we saw the inconvenient truth from algor and and all those things uh, slowly started spreading and now every year goes by there's uh, more dire consequences that that we can see very clearly right so companies have taken notice and and even throughout the supply chain i i work at uh, novellus now so where we make aluminum sheet we've announced ambitious goals for 2026 and 2050 we want to be carbon neutral by that time coca cola has announced some very ambitious goals they they've got the program called world without waste which basically they they want to make sure that there's very specific goals that coke has announced but one of the things i can tell you is they they want to make sure that the plastic waste doesn't get to the oceans because that's been a pretty big you know monkey on their backs let's let's call it that right and it's not just coke it's a lot of cp all the cpg companies so the thing is it, it is extremely important to make sure that we as humans don't create extra waste for for the earth which doesn't go back to the earth right and plastics are a synthetic man made material polymers are man made materials so it's very important that we look at it that way and say hey how can we bring that all that back and either reuse it or recycle it and there's a lot of campaigns for that coming to your materials question fundamentally speaking all of these are materials so material science has a role to play everywhere right so if you look at uh, let's just talk very specifically like if you take glass Uh, glass is made from silica and basic sand and it's taken to a very high temperature processed and all that so there's a lot of material science behind glass itself although it's been there for thousands of years right but the glass technology is advanced so much that we have you know gorilla glass for the iphone and and so many different types of glasses for packaging specifically glass has a has a place for itself you know it's it gives that real 
solid look, it's clear and transparent. So it has its own material benefits that it provides. Similarly, if you take aluminum, it's the highest recycled material on earth. And I think one of the things on aluminum is at least 70 or between 70 to 75% of all the aluminum that's ever been mined and taken out of the planet is in use today. Okay. So that's a remarkable fact. And we want to make sure that we keep it that way or, or make it even better. So a lot of companies, including Novellus, are looking at ways to make sure that the energy that goes into manufacturing all the aluminum, the, the carbon footprint, as we call it, we reduce it significantly. We want to reduce it by 30% uh, by 26 and then completely 100% carbon neutral, which means we will not put an extra ounce of carbon or CO2 into the atmosphere by 2050 for making, manufacturing, and, and selling aluminum. Similarly, if you come to the plastics world, it's a little different. Like we said, you know, aluminum and glass are naturally available and they are processed. Plastic is man-made. It's, it's a polymer and it's synthesized in the plants. There's a lot of processing that goes behind it. The next time we all see a plastic bottle, we should think that, hey, there's a lot of processing behind this package. How can I get it back to its source? You know, recycle it or, or reuse it at home for something. Let's not just walk by and say, oh, somebody's going to pick it up, right? So that responsibility and the mindset shift needs to come. And then... If you look at the material itself, the way the plastic is recycled, if you, if you take a plastic bottle and you recycle it like several times, you know, the aluminum can can be recycled infinite number of times and it's not going to lose its properties. You know, the material remains the same aluminum alloy and, and so forth. The plastic, because of contamination that happens in the supply chain, there you go. Again, going back to your first question, the supply chain keeps introducing contaminants uh, within the plastic and it degrades over time. So if you recycle the, the same plastic bottle into a plastic bottle seven or eight times, you're not going to have the same properties, which means Cokes and the Pepsis won't want to use it, right? So there's a lot of research going on to make sure that this plastic is recycled the right way. So there's, there's a mechanical recycling and chemical recycling technologies that are being explored. Where the, where the polymer can be broken down into the monomer and then put back into a polymer and so many so many other different techniques being explored. So the material science aspect of it happens to be right at the top along with marketing and awareness and mindset, cultural shift and all that. The material science is, is, uh, is probably a top priority for, for the entire packaging industry, I would say. Yeah, I know a big thing with plastics is the idea of downcycling. So I think the most common use of a water or like a plastic bottle when recycled is to create polyester for clothing and just synthetic fiber to create clothing. So a lot of clothing is made out of recycled bottles. And I think the biggest thing that I think you touched on was just the fact that it is so much easier to recycle something and use it again than to take it from the raw materials and create something new. And I think that's something that isn't evident in today's society that most people know about. Um, I think that's the shift. 
Uh, absolutely, it's not, right? And, and you can apply the same thing we talked about, how we pick up the package, like the awareness, trial, and repeat. If we become aware and we trial it, then we see the benefits and then we repeat it. So we, we can apply the same kind of habit building for the recycling also, right? So plastic bottles, talking about what you just said, because their properties degrade and we are not able to take them back intact into a bottle, the bottle-to-bottle -bottle recycling, as we call it, because that's, that's not working very well, it gets downcycled is what we are saying because the fiber and the textile industry downcycles that plastic. That plastic bottle is the, the most valuable thing we can do for that plastic bottle is to bring it back as a plastic bottle, right? Because that's what it's been made for. It's got this, those properties specific to that application. Let's make it back into a plastic bottle. That, that's what everybody is trying to do. If you look at the Cokes and the Pepsis, they, what they're trying to do is they're encouraging recycling, of course, but then this, the struggle with the property loss happens, the degradation of the material properties. So the way to tackle it is make refillable plastic bottles. So they're trying to make refillable packages, which are really thick and tank-like, just like the glass. And uh, so you can basically take it back to the store and and the store uh, gets to reuse it and put Coke back in it. So the refillable PET is, is one thing that, uh, that the companies are pushing. The other thing is a lot of shift and growth has happened on the aluminum side. People are trying to uh, put the new beverages. For example, even wine is, in, is being sold in cans nowadays. You can see if you go to the, the wine shop or the, you know, uh, as long as we are able to go and, and take a look at them, you can you can see a lot of different beverages being packaged in uh, in cans. So there's a lot of shift happening in in the industry, you know, because of these these very facts. Just today, we discussed such a wide variety of topics around packaging and its uses, and it's clear that from just the last ten minutes that material science has a lot of questions to answer uh, in the future of packaging and one that it seems like Coke and Pepsi and all these other creators are really putting a heavy focus on. So since you have so much experience in this industry, what advice would you have for MSCs that do want to get into this industry and solve these issues that you just laid out? You know, my, my first advice would be to roll up your sleeves and get ready for a thrill ride. <laughs> it is a very, very exciting and vibrant area, especially now, like we were just talking, the industry is shifting. There's a lot of focus on helping the planet get back to where it was 100 years ago or, or even before that. So the material science and scientists and engineers that come out of deep knowledge of materials, they're going to be in high demand. And this is, it could be a mix of a short and a long game, but I would say as a career, right? That's why I said roll up your sleeves would be my advice is that just go out and experience as much as we can. One of the things we used to say in Coke is packaging is the center of the world because the package touches everything, literally and figuratively. So from my personal experience, I can tell you, you know, having worked on different packages, you work with brands. So you learn branding and marketing. You work with 
very, very hardcore, deep scientists on the beverage side, you know, chemists and chemistry, people with, with a lot of chemistry and beverage knowledge, flavor science. It's a whole different world in itself. Uh, you learn about that. You participate in taste panels. You also look at interaction between the beverage and the package. Uh, so you, you're working with, you know, interface and product scientists, product development scientists that way. The packaging uh, also needs to retain quality. So you're working with the quality people. You're working with the bottlers because the package has to run through their line. Otherwise, they're going to be knocking on your door, right? You've got to be working with the procurement people, the purchasing, because the packages have to be purchased to, to be able to run them. You're pretty much working with everybody in the company, with finance, procurement, supply chain, the, the whole shebang. So as long as you're willing to roll up your sleeves, that there, there is a very exciting world out there. That, that would be my biggest advice, especially for new graduates and, and scientists uh, that you're looking for opportunities. Packaging is definitely an exciting, exciting field. Okay. Absolutely. I didn't know it was so cross-functional in terms of collaboration and MSc, such an interdisciplinary field. So um, I think those two go hand in hand. But yeah, thank you so much, Raj, for joining us today. I, I'm so excited for the future of the package industry and the role of materials now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, all the best to everyone. tuning in to this episode of the It's Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. If you'd like to meet other passionate material scientists and discuss all things MSE, join our Discord community using the link in the show notes below. If you want to support us and the growth of this podcast or just show off your love for material science, visit our shop at itsamaterialworldpodcast.com forward slash shop or by using the link in the show notes. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow this show with our community's input so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms and those links will also be provided. We'll see you soon. And in the meantime, Go change the world.